blessing of singing that way this morning. That was great. Um, my name is Mark Absher. If we've never had a chance to meet, and uh, I've been on staff here for about 21 years, along with uh, lots of other folk that have been privileged to, uh, to minister to this church. And if we've never had a chance to, uh, to meet, I, w- I would love to take that opportunity this morning. If you go out into our foyer, our, what we call the family room, there's a big green wall off to, the, off to the right. I'll be standing in front of it. I would love for you just to take a moment to, uh, to stop by, introduce yourself, and for us to have the opportunity to meet and greet one another. I would also, at this time, invite you to reach into the bulletin and pull out the, um, out of that announcement sheet, out of the bulletin, the insert. On one side of it is the MPG, the memorize, the pray, and the glorify. All of that is going to be some stuff that you can do this, this week. Uh, starting maybe later this uh, today and then going through the rest of the week as it pertains to the message this morning and the scriptures that we're going to be looking at. And we are, as you know, uh, studying the Lord's Prayer. But before I do that, uh, you know, every summer our church has been blessed with, uh, with great uh, interns working with our youth. And this year, this summer was no exception to that. In fact, I think we were sort of uh, extraordinarily blessed by the two young people from Oklahoma that came our way this summer to to work with our teenagers and to work with Jonathan and to pour their lives and their faith and 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 their wisdom into our teenagers and if you did not have a chance to meet them unfortunately this is going to be their last Sunday with us they're going to be heading back to college and to Oklahoma this next week but I would like to have them stand and for us to recognize them and to show them our gratitude for the ways that they have blessed our kids this summer and been a blessing to Jonathan, Josh Knox, and Chandler Dean. Would you guys stand? Well done, well done. Thank you for coming our way. As you know, we are thinking about prayer. Uh, specifically the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that we find in uh, Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 6, that begins with the words, Our Father. And the theme throughout this series has been this, that living like Jesus requires praying like Jesus. Living like Jesus requires praying like Jesus, that you have to pray like Jesus if you want to live like Jesus. And the Lord's Prayer prayed consistently will continually train us to live in the reality of, cre- of a creation that is saturated with our Father. It is important for us to be reminded that in the way that Jesus is teaching prayer, He is pointing us to a Father and not to a formula. The daily prayer, this daily prayer, the Our Father, and sometimes we pray multiple times during the day, teaches us how to live deliberately. It teaches us how to live intentionally like Jesus in the world in relationship with God the Father. Now, the next part of the prayer, the next component of this prayer, addresses a subject that every person in this room, without a shadow of a doubt, has dealt with multiple times in their life. And we're going to pose it as a question. How do you navigate the pain caused by people? How do you do that? How do you navigate the pain caused by people? 
People can be a problem. Amen? How do you get beyond the slights? The insensitivities. How do you get beyond those hurtful words, whether they're intentional or not? The insults, the neglect, the dismissals, the being ignored, the rejection, the the being ridiculed, the disappointments, the betrayals, the dishonesty, and the lies. All the letdowns, all the rudeness, and all manner of human selfishness. How do you navigate the pain that has caused the inevitable pain? That is caused by people. Now, church, the inevitable answer is this. The biblical answer to each and every people problem will always have at its core forgiveness. It will always have at its core forgiveness. Now, let's be honest. Sometimes forgiveness sounds like a terrible idea. There are times when forgiveness sounds like the worst of the worst of the worst of ideas. Payback? That sounds great. Revenge? Now we're talking. But here's the thing. Holding a grudge is just so exhausting, is it not? It is so exhausting. You know, we think to ourselves, maybe I'm going to sit on the other side of the auditorium, and our strategy is this, that if I don't see him, then I won't think about him, but it doesn't work. Why? It's because broken relationships take a toll on our lives. Amen? In fact, let's say that together, because it's true. Broken relationships take a toll on our lives. We don't do well, do we, with broken relationships? We don't do well with damaged relationships. Somebody once said that, you know, to not forgive somebody is to be, you know, like a person that drinks poison hoping that the other person is going to die. We need help to forgive when forgiveness seems impossible. But one of the things we always have to remember, church, is that forgiveness is at the core of the gospel. And this is why Jesus teaches us in the model prayer to pray about the presence and the practice of forgiveness in our life and relationships. So after give us this day our daily bread, Jesus says, and forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. We very often, I know, notice Let's pay attention to what it is that Jesus is teaching us to pray. Very often we pray, and we hear it prayed, forgive us of our sins. But Jesus teaches us, and forgive us of our debts, as we also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this is so important, this whole forgiveness theme that Jesus is addressing. It's so important that Jesus is actually going to go back immediately to forgiveness after he gives them this model prayer. So he gives them the model prayer, he ends it, they say amen, and then he says in verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your only Father is also going to forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins... Your Father will not forgive your sins. Uh, You know, let me read that again just to make sure that we got it straight. Can you go back one more slide to the Scripture there, Caleb? 
For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. In other words, an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. An unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. Now I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later in the message, but here's the thing. To seek forgiveness without extending forgiveness makes us what? To seek forgiveness without extending forgiveness to other people. We've received boatloads of forgiveness from God, but not to extend it to other people means that we are what? We are hypocrites. Jesus is saying that forgiveness is a life and death matter. Forgiveness is a life and death matter. And this is why he says, you've got to pray about it. Forgiveness does not come naturally to human beings. After four decades of working with people in all kinds of relationship struggles, because guess what? People are a problem. It is my observation that forgiveness is an essential but underdeveloped life skill. We all can talk about it, but we really struggle with how to do it. Does that sound familiar? Forgiveness is essential in the kingdom of God, but it is a... a completely underdeveloped life skill. So on the time that we have left this morning, I want to talk about forgiveness. I want, to talk, I want us to consider three things about forgiveness. The first is what it's not. Secondly, what it is. And then thirdly, how to practice it. Let's start with what it's not. Forgiveness is difficult work, right? For. Forgiveness is is hard work. And one reason that forgiveness is difficult is because of misconceptions, of which there are four. Now, I've talked about these before over the years. I'll go over them very quickly. But this is the four misconceptions, the big four when it comes to making forgiveness hard. Number one, forgiveness is not forgetting. God has given us in our mind, in our brain, a little room called remember. And we have an extraordinary memory. I mean, for many of us, we're going to go to our grave with some really great memories, and we're going to go to our grave with some really bad memories and some horrific memories. And there's always, you know, somebody that just always equates forgiveness with forgetting, that I, you know, until I can forget, you know, I've not really forgiven. And they're always quick to pull up like Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah says, the prophet, he's speaking for God, he says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And they go, see, there it is. Forgiveness and forgetting go hand in hand. And that's not what that passage is saying. What God is saying is that when I forgive you, it's like your your sins are no longer there. When I forgive your wickedness, it's like it's no longer there. When you forgive somebody, and you can completely forgive somebody, that doesn't mean that the memory is going to go away. Number two, forgiveness does not null and void the consequences or responsibilities. One of the, one of the misconceptions that really makes forgiveness hard in our culture is that we think that if I forgive you, then that really means that it wasn't a big deal. And it broke my heart. And if I forgive you, then there's no consequences and you know, it makes null and void responsibilities. And again, that's not true. You can forgive somebody, but that does not mean that they're going to avoid or escape consequences or the responsibilities they have for restitution. I mean, you steal the pig, you give the pig back. If you steal the pig, 
and eat the pig, then you have to pay for the pig. It doesn't, just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean that restitution is now null and void. Number three, forgiveness does not bring immediate pain relief. And quite frankly, church, that's why it's so tough to go through the processes, but need, uh, so needed today to go through the processes of forgiveness. The deeper the wound, the, the deeper the cut, the longer the healing. And then number four, forgiveness is not synonymous with reconciliation. One of the reasons that people really are so loath to go into the process of forgiveness is that they believe that if I forgive that person, then that means that I've got to jump right back into a toxic, painful, damaging, dangerous, poisonous relationship. And that is not true. Forgiveness is not synonymous with reconciliation. Now, here's the thing. Reconciliation is not impossible. Reconciliation is not impossible, but it's not always possible. The reason for that is that when it comes to reconciliation, it takes two to tango. It takes one to forgive and one to repent. I mean, that's the way it works in our relationship with God, right? God has forgiven, but until we repent. And think about all of the passages that deal with how we come into a saving relationship with God. And how many times, all of them, does repentance show up? It's because God has forgiven, but we are changing our life in order for there to be the proper kind of a relationship that God wants to have. We're changing our lives. We're coming to our senses. We're turning our lives 180 degrees. We're not going to be idolatrous, but we're going to follow God. We're turning away from the sins that beset us in order to turn towards God. So forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness does not make null and void consequences or responsibilities. Forgiveness does not bring immediate pain relief. Forgiveness is not synonymous with reconciliation. I would maybe add a fifth, and that is sometimes you need help. The, one of the big misconceptions is that I can do all forgiveness by myself. If you wanted to write a fifth one down, it would be, you know, so, sometimes we need help. We need, we, need, we need people that are skilled in faith and in the processes of forgiveness to help us walk through that. So what is it? Now, you may have noticed in the prayer that Jesus uses words when it comes to forgiveness like debt and debtor. Forgiveness here carries the idea of canceling a debt like you would find in accounting. In fact, forgiveness has a lot of accounting background to it. And the idea is that somebody wrongs you and they owe you a debt. They, they, they owe you. And you forego the right to the pound of flesh by removing that debt. That, in a nutshell, is, you know, at 5,000 feet, is what forgiveness is. But let me give you three ideas. And, and again, we're skimming across the top here. Three ideas that help us to get our mind around forgiveness. The first one is this. Forgiveness is based on a cross. Forgiveness is based on a cross. Your debt was paid by Christ, by His life and His blood that was shed on the cross. Colossians chapter 1, we read these words, In whom and that whom is Jesus, we have redemption. That word redemption means that we have been set free from our enslavement to sin, or the forgiveness of sins, that that has all been done away with, and through Jesus to reconcile to Himself, that is to God, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the what? 
shed on the cross. So it is at the cross that forgiveness takes place, which leads to the second point. Forgiveness is a new beginning. When you have been forgiven by God, you have been given a new beginning. When God forgives your sins, He is wiping the slate clean. When God forgives your sins, He is removing all of the things that stand between you and He. One of the most famous passages in the Hebrew Scriptures is Psalm 103, beginning in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, I mean, just imagine the distance between heaven and earth. So great is his his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, which is infinite. East keeps going that way. West keeps going that way. They become more and more infinitely farther apart. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you know what David is saying when you experience God's forgiveness David is telling us that God chooses not to think about our sins. That God chooses not to dwell on our sins. Which means that the new birth leads to a new life, and new life leads to a new way of living, which is the third thing, forgiveness empowers forgiveness. You can't give away what you've never received, right? But when you receive a blessing from God, what are you supposed to do with it? Become a cul-de-sac? Become a dead end? And just hold that thing? No. When God gives you a blessing, when you experience the nearness of God, all of the goodness of God, that is something that just overwhelms you and changes you and blesses you, and you can't help but pass it on to the next person. The experience of being forgiven everything, not just some things, but everything transforms us into a people who can forgive everything. Now, you know, and I've said it before, that forgiveness does not come naturally to us. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus teaches us to pray about it. You know, one of the the really awful things is to try to go through the processes of forgiveness on our own, on our own steam, under our own intellect. And Jesus is teaching us here, you know, when it comes to forgiving other people, experiencing the forgiveness of God and being able to pass that on to other people, you need to pray about it. You need God to be a part of that equation. Now, all the commentators are quick to say that we do not earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others, nor are we forgiven to the same degree as we forgive others. Uh, For example, a fellow by the name of Michael Wilkin writes this, This does not mean that humans forgive others before they can receive forgiveness. That becomes legalism. That becomes you earning, not by grace, but you earning your forgiveness. Rather, forgiveness of others is proof that the disciple's sins are forgiven and he or she possesses salvation. In other words, as our cup overflows with the experience of forgiveness... It overflows as an experience of forgiveness into the lives of other people. Here's what that looks like. On my back porch, I've got pepper plants and I've got tomato plants. And the tomato plants on my back porch, you know, some of these plants have beautiful, beautiful tomatoes on them and some do not. Although they have received exactly the same amount of sun, 
the same soil, the same amount of water, the same amount of love. I mean, I talk to my plants, all that kind of stuff, but the tomatoes are different. Now, when I see some bearing fruit and some are not, what am I to think about those tomato plants? Some of the tomato plants are healthy, and some are not. The tomatoes do not make the plant healthy. The tomatoes reveal that that plant is healthy. And that's what it means to forgive others in the way that we have been forgiven. A sign of grace in the heart is the practice of forgiveness in our lives. Have you experienced the forgiveness of God? Do you know that you have been rescued from your sins? Do you realize that each and every day that you are walking with a clean slate in the presence of God, a sign of that grace, that gift, that forgiveness that you will never earn and that you don't deserve and you'll never be able to hang on to it by your good works, that that sign of grace in your heart is the practice of passing on that same forgiveness to other people who intersect your lives. Grace is a sign that you have received it. And there are three, I think, very proactive decisions and activities that you go through every day to develop that as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. The first one is this. You treat others as God has treated you. Think about all the people that you intersect on a daily basis. Husbands, think about your wives. Wives, think about your husbands. Do you treat your husband or your wife? Do you treat your spouse the way that God has treated you? I don't want to show a hands. Brothers and sisters, colleagues at work, you know, siblings, cousins. Do we, do we treat others as God has treated me personally? When I think about all the ways that God... And, and, you know, this is such an important part of our daily walk with God, right? Of counting the blessings and, and, and slowing down our life. You know what happens when we get too hurried in life is that we start moving at the speed of life and all of a sudden the blessings are passing so by that we really can't see them. And when we do see them, they're such a blur that we don't really count them. But then all of a sudden we begin to consider all of the ways that God has taken care of us and God forgives us and God maintains relationship with us, even though we're kind of wretched at times. And we wonder, you know, am I treating other people the way that God treats me? You know, Paul talks about all of the great things that God has done in the first three chapters of the letter that we know as Ephesians. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, the very last verse of, of, of chapter 4 says this, Be kind and compassionate to one another. Why? Because God's been kind and compassionate to you. Also, forgiving each other just as. Forgiving each other just as in Christ Jesus, God has forgiven you. Our mantra is this, God forgives me, I will forgive others. Say that with me. God forgives me, I will forgive others. Let's say it again. God forgives me, and I will forgive others. Second one, my, my favorite one is this. The first move is more important than the first punch. The first move is always more important than the first punch. 
Remember, remember, you know, I'm 61 years old. I can't remember kindergarten all that well. But I, but I have a couple of kindergartners that are, you know, around my legs a lot. And, you know, one of the really, you know, things that you remember about those periods of time is, you know, kids are going to get in a scuffle from time to time. And once, you know, once they get called into account, you separate them out. And, you know, what's the first thing they say? He started it. He started it. He threw the first punch. I can remember even up in high school, you know, guys in the locker room would kind of get tight with each other. And, you know, it would, you know, maybe I shouldn't tell you this because it get my coach in trouble. But, you know, there was always who threw the first punch. Who threw the first punch? That's the way we think. Except in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, what matters is making the first move towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Listen, you are a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. You know what that means? You're always going to be the bigger person. You're always going to take the higher road. And that's what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar, that is, you're at worship. And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. It doesn't say who threw the first punch. It doesn't say, you know, who started it. But knowing, having that knowledge, if there's something you guys, you know, are not exactly, you know, you're, you're jammed up a little bit with each other, leave your gift there in front of the altar first. Go and be reconciled to them. It's, it's ironic, but what is more important than worship in the eyes of the Father? The reconciliation of the kids. You know, Jesus, Jesus, as he's being crucified, and those nails are going right through his body. You know what it means to be pierced? I mean, that's what Isaiah says, right? That he was pierced for our iniquities. To pierce something means it goes in one side and comes out the other. He was pierced by nails for our sins. What is he doing when that happens? He is speaking to the Father about sons by creation. And what's he saying? Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He is practicing what he preached. And then the last thing, and we'll close with this, I will think of others the way that Christ thinks of me. I will think of others in the way that Christ thinks of me. You know, Paul is, is writing about, you know, in Philippians chapter 2, he's writing to that church in the second chapter. You know, he's going to have to deal with some ladies that are having issues and all these kinds of things in the latter part of the book. And he begins by describing, you know, this is what Jesus did. He didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be held on. But he's willing to be, humble himself and to empty himself of all of the vestiges of heaven and glory in order to become like us. And what is it that that is an example of? What he says at the very beginning of that section in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, that in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You don't just treat people the way that God has treated you, but you think about people the way that Christ thinks about you. And here's the thing. Christ looks at the person that you're jammed up with or who's jammed up with you. Christ looks at that person and he thinks that person is worth dying for.
If that is true, that when Christ looks at that person, he sees a person worth dying for, it then in turn comes to me to see that person as someone worth forgiving. We forgive as we have been forgiven. That's our prayer. Let's pray. Father, what a challenge you have presented.